Welcome to episode 69 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. In this episode, we get to speak with retired agent Jenna Davis, who served 25 years with the FBI. Jenna began her bureau career on a violent crimes and drug trafficking crime squad in Albany, New York. After a long-term undercover assignment in the Baltimore division, Jenna received a permanent transfer and continued to investigate drug and violent crimes in addition to starting and serving as the acting supervisor of a safe streets task force operating out of Calverton, Maryland. Jenna Davis and Maryland State Trooper and Homicide Detective Ted Jones, a 10-year task force member, are interviewed about how the team solved a cold case murder of the execution-style shooting of three young women. The women's bodies were left in a secluded area off a rural road in Laurel, Maryland. Because the location was on federal land, the case was initially investigated by the U.S. Park Police and later reassigned to the Safe Streets Task Force. The task force was able to gather the evidence to charge the three men responsible for the murders. In 1999, Jenna Davis was promoted to a supervisory position at FBI headquarters, managing FBI personnel stationed at legal attache offices at U.S. embassies in countries around the world. She was promoted again in 2001 and was assigned to the Seattle Division, Tacoma Resident Agency, where she managed all investigative programs in the three offices under her purview. Jenna Davis initiated a Safe Streets Task Force and a Joint Terrorism Task Force during her six-year tenure in Tacoma. Her last assignment was in the FBI's Criminal Investigative Division, CID, where she served as Chief of Staff for the Assistant Director. I think you'll really enjoy this interview. It's a fascinating case review of the task force concept and how well the FBI, despite what you read in books and see in TV and movies, has a solid working relationship with their local and state counterparts. One thing that you may notice during the episode is that I have deleted the name of the used car dealership that was so instrumental in solving this case. I did so because I wasn't sure if their cooperation was part of the public record, but I really do wish I could give them full credit for their assistance in this matter. If you're listening to this episode when it first comes out, my daughter's wedding is just a week away. So I do want to make sure you know I will not be posting an episode of FBI Retired Case File Review on June 10th. I'll be very busy in the next week with all of my mother of the bride duties, but I will be back on June 17th with another brand new case file review for you. I'm feeling very blessed at this time of my life and filled with gratitude for all that I have. My FBI career and my health are near the top of the list, but the most important thing is my wonderful family, 
my husband, Keith, my son, Chase, my beautiful twin daughters, Shauna, and soon-to-be bride, Dana, and we can't forget my soon-to-be son-in-law, Sean. On my Facebook author page, Jerry Williams Author, and in the June newsletter, I'll make sure to post a few photos from the wedding to show off my beautiful family. If you don't mind me getting all mushy with you, I also appreciate you. When I started this podcast a little less than a year and a half ago, I would never have imagined that it would become one of iTunes' top chart podcasts under the arts category. I had it placed under arts and literature because I really wanted to use this podcast to give people a true picture of how the FBI works as opposed to what they see in books, TV, and movies. I tell people when it comes to true crime, this podcast is more like 2020 than Dateline. So just want to invite you again to join the FBI Retired Case File Review team, where I'll send you out entertainment news about the FBI, share with you my FBI reading resource, which lists all the books, memoirs, crime fiction, and true crime written by the FBI agents featured on this podcast. To be a part of the FBI Retired Case File Review team, all you need to do is go to jerrywilliams.com and sign up when you see the pop-up. I also want to thank those of you who have taken the time to check out my FBI crime thriller, Pay to Play, about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. My time and expenses to produce and host this podcast are supported by you. When you pick up a copy of Pay to Play for yourself or as a gift for someone you know loves crime fiction, you're helping to defray the cost for me to continue to produce ad-free content on a weekly basis. So please keep up the reviews, tweets, posts, and emails. I love hearing from you. Thank you. And here's the show. I'm excited to introduce my guest today. We have Jenna Davis. Hi, Jenna. Hey, Jerry. And we also have Ted Jones. Hi, Ted. Hello, Jerry. How are you? I'm good. So the case that we're going to talk about today is absolutely fascinating. Triple murder. I know that this case was a cold case that went unsolved for a number of years, was it? Right. Before you actually started working on the triple murder, when did you first learn about it? Did you learn about these three women being murdered at the time it actually happened? Do you remember hearing about it or seeing it on TV? Go ahead, Ted. Yeah. Uh, one morning uh, at my Southern Maryland residence, you know, I'm up at 6 o'clock, 6.30, and I'm preparing to leave for work. I turn on the morning news, and there was news coverage of this horrific overnight discovery of three uh, women um, shot to death um, on 197, Route 197 in Laurel Bowie area of uh, Prince George's County. It was it was horrific, heinous and horrific. Um, and I remember, I clearly remember, you know, being impacted by by this because not long before that, my niece was murdered in a domestic violence situation in Baltimore City. And so I, you know, I immediately identified with, you know, violence against, you know, three women, three young women. 
And I remember thinking to myself, gosh, who, who, who could do this to three women? What could they possibly do to anyone to deserve this fate? And so um, I remember it very well because the newscaster actually mentioned that a motorist called in believing that there were three mannequins lying in a roadway when, in fact, we know that they weren't mannequins. They were three bodies. So that's when I so I, I was aware of it the, the morning that it was discovered and it was on the news and uh, and I remember thinking wow I, w- I would really like to to help solve this case but of course at that time I wasn't on the task force yet uh, the state police certainly didn't have any jurisdiction uh, in fact the um, the uh, the murders were on federal property were in the park police had uh, primary jurisdiction U.S. Park Police. So, Jerry, I remember this case because I remember hearing about the three murders and listening to the news broadcast. And I remember thinking that, wow, this happened on federal property. I wonder if this will be an FBI case because it's one of the few areas in which the FBI normally will work. A homicide is on some type of federal reservation. But... I later found out when I got to work that the park police had primary jurisdiction on this investigation. So I said, well, I guess we won't be working it. And, you know, good luck to the park police in trying to solve it. So that's how I remember this case. And then we ended up with the investigation sometime later. Before we start talking about the case, I just want to give everybody a a good understanding of the Safe Street Task Force concept and how task force members like retired Maryland State Trooper and homicide detective Ted Jones, how they fit into the FBI's task force program. Jenna, could you tell us about that? Sure, Jerry, I can speak about that. Um, The FBI uses the Safe Streets Task Force program as a way to assist local jurisdictions with specific crime problems that um, sometimes needs the, uh, needs the ability or the resources of the FBI and other agencies to address. So back in 1992 or so, we started our first Safe Streets Task Forces, and currently we probably have over 150 of them across the country. And what the Safe Streets Task Forces do is they go to their local departments, identify um, agencies and personnel that would fit together to kind of address a specific crime problem, violent crime. It could be fugitives. It could be uh, gang, gang violence. It could be uh, drug trafficking. And the task force that we started in the Baltimore Division uh, was a Safe Streets Task Force uh, addressing violent crime and cold case homicides. And so we had a mixture of local uh, police officers from the county in Prince George's County. We also had a couple of auxiliary members from other jurisdictions, and then we had some folks from the state police in Maryland. The FBI pays the overtime associated with these police officers who work on the task force. We worked as a team, and basically it's a way to kind of augment the resources of both departments. Um, one of the, now, are they deputized? They are deputized. They go through the same background investigation that special agents go through. They receive a top 
secret security clearance, and they have access to FBI systems as far as records and report report um, systems. They also um, have access to FBI vehicles and have access to FBI equipment to work to work the joint investigations. And the other important fact about the task force officers is that they really are under supervision of the FBI. Now, I know on some occasions we will deputize uh, supervisors from the other departments to work as a team, depending upon the size of the task force. So you'll have an FBI supervisor and a local supervisor working with the task force. But the majority of the time, um, everyone is under the FBI uh, supervision. So you were the supervisor of this task force? Right. It was a Prince George's County um, Safe Streets Task Force, and we were stationed in Calverton, Maryland, which is situated in Prince George's County between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. And our primary jurisdiction was the um, Prince George's County, some Montgomery County area of Maryland. And so that's the area that we worked. It was a pretty big area, but most of the violent crime that we worked was in the Prince George's County area. And how long were you the supervisor? So I was an agent when we developed this task force. The SAC asked me to work with my contacts in the Prince George's County area to develop a task force, which I did. So I think we started the task force, and I'm not sure the exact time frame, Jerry. It was somewhere around 93, 94, somewhere around that time frame. Yeah. And then you left in? I left in 99. They brought in another supervisor for the permanent position because I was in an acting capacity. So I was still a field agent. They made me the acting supervisor. And then when I was leaving to go to headquarters, gave the job to another supervisor who came from headquarters. Okay. And Ted, when did you join the task force? How long were you actually on the task force? I joined the task force, I'm thinking, sometime um the early 90s. I was uh, working out of our Columbia office of the uh, state police uh, CID headquarters for the state police is in Columbia, Maryland. So that's where I was assigned when I got uh, noticed that I had been, uh, I would be joining uh, the Prince George's County uh, Task Force. And I think, you, Jen, as a supervisor, you, you was my first point of contact mm-hmm. for uh, the task force when I uh, first came on. So how long did the Park Police try to solve the case before they asked for the FBI's assistance? So I think this murders happened like in January of 96. And we ended up with this case sometime in like the summer of 98. So about two years, a year and a half. And it wasn't that they weren't able to solve it because they were able to develop some good suspects in the homicide. There was a couple of notes written by one of the victims with a license plate number that kind of identified a vehicle that was associated with the girls that evening, or they thought that evening. And the Park Police was able to work a, I think it was a drug investigation on one guy and ended up getting him convicted on those drug charges. 
but they knew that other people were involved and they weren't getting anywhere with that part of the investigation. So I recall a supervisor in our office who was friends with one of the park police investigators getting the case from him and bringing it to me and saying, hey, Jenna, this would be a good case for your task force. And at that point, um, you know, I took a look at it, saw what they had, and sat down with some of the agents on the task force, and we developed a plan to try to identify and um, gain access to one of the weaker links in the conspiracy so that we can maybe get him to confess to what was going on with the rest of the subjects in the case. When she gets the case, that wasn't um, one of the case that, cases that I was looking at. I am actually, at that time, I am involved in another case with other agents under gender supervision. And uh, we're actually uh, looking at another bad guy, another heinous murder, if you will, among many in Prince George's County at that time. And I recall the uh, the guys who were working um, uh, with Jenna, the agents, and the other task force officers, the Prince George's County uh, detectives, um, had did a phenomenal job in uh, trying to move the case forward after it came to 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 our task force, to, to the Safe Streets Task Force for review. I mean, they did they did a lot of uh, put a lot of hours in trying to, as Jenna mentioned, trying to identify that wink link and trying to get him to a point where we could uh where they could get some cooperation uh from him to kind of um determine what was really going on within their group. Jenna, could you tell me a little bit about what your initial steps were? Okay, so our strategy was that one of the subjects in the case uh was a low level drug dealer in the Laurel, Maryland area. And he was known to the local police in Laurel and also to the park police as a drug dealer. And so we thought maybe we would go at him with a lightweight, you know, undercover operation where we would use one of the task force officers as an undercover, get the, get him introduced via a source, uh, and buy some drugs from him so that we could get some federal, you know, some drug charges on him use that means as a way to arrest him, you know, get search warrants, et cetera, and then get him in for interviews. One of the victims, and the three victims, and I would be remiss in not mentioning their names, they were Tangi Jackson, Tamika Black, and Michonne Chen. And they were all three friends. They lived kind of in the district, all had jobs, and they were hanging out um, in the Laurel area with these guys and ended up going to one of the three. So there was Willis Haynes, Victor Gloria, and Dustin Higgs. And they ended up going to Dustin Higgs' apartment, I guess, to party. Things weren't going so well. Um, the girls um, got into an argument. They were, had been drinking alcohol, et cetera. And the girls got a little upset at some way they were being treated by Dustin Higgs. And so they ended up wanting to leave. And so... One of the girls, I think it was Tangie Jackson, ended up grabbing a knife because I guess she felt a little bit threatened. And at that point, you know, they talked her down. They said, come on, girls, we're going to leave. And so they started out on foot and walked away from the apartment and were trying to get a ride back to D.C. And Willis Haynes, Victor Gloria, and uh, Dustin Higgs 
end up getting themselves together, getting in a car that Dustin was driving, and pick them up, and I guess in the pretense of taking them back to D.C., and they ended up along, um, which is a national wildlife refuge in Laurel on an isolated road, and they threw the girls out of the car at that point, and it's dark and secluded in that area. I mean, it's not, there are no lights, it's very dark, and the girls are like, well, what the hell, what are we going to do now? I mean, how are we going to get home? And that's when they got out, uh, at least Willis Haynes got out and shot the three girls right there on the road, and then they took off and left them for dead. So during that time when they're having this altercation, one of the girls writes down Dustin Higgs' license plates, and through his name and then his known associates, they put together the story that the three of them were together on that evening, and that's how we were able to target Willis Haynes. But the park police had not been successful in getting anyone really to talk about the homicides, even after Dustin Higgs got convicted for the drug charges. He did not talk. And so that's why we were left with trying to identify Willis Haynes. He was the most vulnerable because we knew he was still engaged in, you know, drug trafficking activity from the Laurel Police Department, and that's why we decided to go after him. Um, I'm trying to get a, a, a rationale, and I guess there's never a good reason for, you know, someone to, to shoot three women, but what what was the reason for him to shoot them? Well, you know, of course none of us were there, and we only have good speculation from both one of the subjects in this case, Victor Gloria, ended up uh, cooperating with the government. And so we were able to get more of the story from him. When one of the girls wrote down the license plate number, they said that they were going to get their boys from D.C. to go after these guys. I think Dustin Higgs was insulted by that, felt a little bit threatened, and it was all about ego. And as a result, they're like, okay, we'll take care of these women and so they ended up shooting them. I mean, you know, senseless violence. And it always, it doesn't always make sense. But I think their eagles were affronted. You know, there were these three girls from D.C. thinking they're going to, you know, send the boys to come get us. We'll show them. And so, you know, they ended up shooting them on this secluded road at the National Wildlife Refuge. So that's what you suspect. Now you've got to be able to prove that and get the evidence, and that's where you come into the case, I take it, Ted. Yeah, uh, Jerry, um, as as has been said, it's just a completely senseless uh, uh, murder, a completely senseless act. And so, um, okay, so now I, I am involved. I am uh, working. Uh, I won't, I'm not going to say honored. That's not the word I want to use, but I, I am happy that, you know, wow, I now have a chance to work this case, a case that I've known about since the bodies were discovered. You know, I, I'm, going, I'm going to give it my all to see what I can do to help bring justice and closure to the families that and friends of the of the of the victims who uh, who deserve closure and deserve justice. And so, um, on the particular morning that uh, we are having our Monday morning. Um, meetings, briefings, if you will. It was Task Force Officer uh, Mark Coulter from Prince George's County who reported 
hey, you know, over the weekend, I ran into this Willis Haynes guy who, uh, at the mall, uh, one of his hangouts was the mall, the Laurel Lakes Mall, which is where he served his customers. And as Jenna mentioned earlier, he, this is guy, I would call him a, a micro drug dealer. He, he was just, I think, Coulter was successful in getting maybe ten bucks here and there. You know, nothing, nothing that would amount to enough to get a search warrant on either a car or a house. He just wasn't that kind of player, right? Um, so, so very low level. Low level, micro, yeah, two bit micro guy. But anyway, so when Coulter reported that back, you know, to the task force. I said, hey, let's let's, uh, and, and he also told, uh, also reported that he he had drove driven away from the mall. He was driving a Nissan Maxima that had a temporary tag and a car sticker on the back affixed to the trunk. So I said, hey, Coulter, after the meeting, let's go to and find out what's you know what's up with that car. So he and I set out. I guess now it's eleven o'clock. Eleven, you know, eleven out. The um, Monday morning briefings usually started at ten. Went for about an hour, hour and a half. So it's around eleven, eleven thirty. We go to. Uh, we talk to the manager. We identify ourselves, and I asked him. I said, "Hey, could we possibly see uh, your purchase folders for any Nissan Maximas that you have have uh, for in the last thirty days that you've um, you've sold in the last thirty days?" So he said, sure, he's very cooperative. He said, you know, just browse around. Uh, I'll be right with you guys. Take me a minute to, to grab the uh, information. So he comes back, and he has like four folders, purchase folders. So the first one he flips open, nothing. Second one, nothing. The third one he flips over on the left corner, you know, when you usually, you know, you buy a car or whatever, they have a copy of your driver's license uh, affixed to paper clip or whatever to the folder. And so when he opened it, Colter said, well, that's him right there. Okay. Now, again, I have no idea what he looks like. Had just heard his name for the most part at the meeting earlier that morning. So upon a closer look, Colter sees that, yeah, it's, it's his pic, it's his picture. However, he's using, using fraudulent identification. So he is his picture, but it's on a driver's license. Of a um, driver's information was to a Kenny Fagan subject that lived in, in Northern Virginia. I can't remember the address, but um, so clearly he has obtained that fraudulent license by, you know, I don't know how he got it, paying someone on the street, but he used that uh, fraudulent ID to open up a checking account in this guy's name, in the name of Kenny Fagan, and he had written a $2,000 check to purchase that car. The problem for him was it was written on a closed account, okay? So they had a copy of the check also in the envelope. So I said, well, listen, um, ask the manager if he could give us, you know, copies of the, the check, which he did. And um, so Colton and I left, and I said, well, listen, we need to go uh, and get a warrant for him basically stealing the car because, you know, writing a check on a closed account is an immediate theft as opposed to insufficient funds or what have you. So we have an we have an out and out theft of the vehicle, and and so um, the focus at that point for Mark and I was to go and get this warrant for the car. Okay. The other thing I think is important to to mention is that there was no weapon found at the scene, so we didn't have we didn't have a weapon 
uh, that was used to kill the girls. And so that's still being sought by the authorities. We're trying to figure out, you know, if you do a search warrant, you know, if, where is he living? You know, is the gun in the car or whatever? We didn't know at that time that um, they, after the murder, shortly after the murder, they got rid of the weapon by throwing it in the Anacostia River in D.C. We didn't know that yet. And then these guys are very uh, nomadic. They, they're living all. They're living with this person, this woman, that woman, this baby mama, that baby mama, as a lot of these you know guys do when they are these actors out there living in the street, rolling around doing doing their, their business. You know, so the focus was to try to find out okay where are they living. You know, um, so the drug deal, drug sales are not really amounting to a point where we could do a search warrant there. So going to get a warrant for the theft of the car, you know, was very was very important um, in terms of when we were able to get them, we would have something to hold them on. For those who aren't familiar, but the that this particular situation is occurring in is in uh, is in Howard County, Maryland. Uh, Laurel, um, the town of Laurel, Laurel actually parts of it is in Prince George's County, Anne Arundel County, and Howard County. It's kind of one of those geographical type quirks, I guess. And so, uh, of course, uh, the state warrant then has to be uh, obtained in the county of which where the crime occurred. Simple enough to understand. And so, I told Coulter that I would go to the, the state police barrack in uh, in Jessup, Maryland, to type out an application to get a warrant because we wanted to get that on file for when we, you know, needed to use it. So Coulter went back to the office and I, uh, in turn, went to the state police barracks and uh, and Jessup there and I typed out an application for the theft of the car and ended up having to take it uh, north of where I was to uh, Ellicott City to uh, a district court commissioner who actually issued the warrant. And so we now have a warrant in hand for the theft of the car. Okay. Jerry, I just wanted to add, and this is the beauty about a Safe Streets Task Force, any kind of FBI-sponsored task force in this in this instance, where we have the ability to use not only the federal, you know, legal system, we have the ability to use the state and the local jurisdictions as well to get process on our criminals, which ended up being very um, relevant in trying to solve this case. If we had not had that task force situation. I mean, we might have been able to charge Willis with a 1001, which is a, you know, lying on a federal document kind of warrant um, for the fraudulent application for the car or some kind of uh, bank fraud charge, which would have been probably have taken us a little bit more time. But having Ted on the task force allowed us to use the state system to get that paper to charge, to go charge and pick up Willis Haynes. Yeah, that was that was absolutely, uh, I think, uh, re- relevant and certainly certainly important to the cause. And I was certainly, um, you know, excited about it because, again, you know, I am now working on a case, you know, with the FBI on a case that I'm very familiar with and a, and a case that impacted me from the moment I saw it on the news. <laughs> you know, we we have to find out what happened to these girls. That that's my focus. And so we secure the local warrant. And so it's it's now late in the evening, way late in the evening by the time I make my way back to my residence in Southern Maryland. But what I don't want to do is enter that warrant into NCIC, 
which uh, your listeners, I'm sure, some may or may not know. But that's the National Crime Information uh, Center. And the reason that I don't want to put it in to NCIC is because we don't want any other officers who aren't familiar with what, we, what we're working on to um, come into contact with that car and possible and possibly miss you know ev- miss an opportunity for evidence if you will and so and 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 that in this type of situation you know we're we're operating on a strictly uh you know need to know basis and you know it's kind of uh the information and knowledge is restricted to the task force agents and officers um exclusively again we don't know what we have we don't know what direction we're going and we can't afford to miss any opportunities to you know find evidence and so when I get back to the task force office the next day, next afternoon, uh, of course, you know, we're updated that updated everyone and we know, okay, we have a warrant on file. We still don't know where he's living. Okay, so we so we can't take him into custody. Uh we get a call from uh and it's um it's the uh tag and title people who says, hey, uh, that guy's calling about picking up his hard tags. Because remember now, when he first bought it, they were issuing the t- paper tags. And so the uh, manager reached out and said, hey, uh, Officer Jones, Trooper Jones, he said, this guy's calling about picking up these tags. And so I remember it clearly. I said, hey, we'll stall him. Tell him I'll call him back. Tell him someone will call him back. And so I'm in the office there uh, in Calverton with the other agents, and so now it's time to put together an operation to receive him when he comes to get his tags. The first of which is to um, employ the assistance of your tech agents. Um, and Jenna, I guess you can explain how what they had to come in and do. Right. And so the scenario at this point is that we're going to go into utilize Ted as an undercover to meet with Willis Haynes, but we want to be able to capture both the audio and video of that meeting. And so we um, end up using our tech agents to wire two rooms, one as a monitoring room and one as as the actual meeting room, so we can monitor uh, what's going on with Ted and we can record video and see what's going on with the conversation. In addition to that, we also have to set up surveillance because, again, Willis Haynes is a known drug trafficker, you know, although lightweight, but we also suspect him of being a murderer. We don't want to um, put Trooper Jones or any other task force officer in any kind of jeopardy or we have, you know, major safety concerns. And so we're always trying to maximize safety in situations like this. So, we get the tech agents involved, they monitor, they set up the recording and surveillance equipment, and then the operation begins, and I'll let Ted talk about that part. Let me ask you a question before you, you go on. How much does know? Do they know that this guy may have been involved in a triple murder? Uh, oh, or do absolutely. they think it's just about the car? Uh, well, absolutely not. Uh, murder, no, absolutely not. Uh, bad guy, yes. And management was very cooperative. In fact, the loss prevention uh, manager who had come up, he was a regional manager from um, the Virginia area, he'd come up and I said, listen, uh, please, can you not 
put that car on your repo list because we didn't want them looking for the car to repossess it for the same reasons that we didn't want any law enforcement officers to, to, to you know be involved in stopping that car because we don't know if evidence is still in the car. And we're hopeful that there is something that is left behind in the trunk or wherever that could lead us to uh, more knowledge about what happened to the girls. Okay, And so they agreed to not put it on their repo list. And of course, we told them, hey, you know, this is a bad guy. We'll get your car back. But no, we absolutely did not tell anyone that we were looking, you know, we were investigating the, uh, the um, a triple murder, murderer. Uh, well, let, this is murder. really strange because he knows that he wrote them a fraudulent check, but he still is bold enough to come back to pick up his tags well jerry let me say let me say this I, i've thought about that but you know these guys uh and i'm sure in your career you you meet bad actors whose only goal is getting over for the moment if i can get over on you for this moment i'm not worried about what happened tomorrow or later this evening you know they're they are constantly constantly in get over mode you know if I can get off, I can beat you out of whatever. Then, hey, that's that's just how it goes. That's how the game is played. That's how their game is played. And so, what was interesting also is, um, I actually, when the manager notified me that he wanted his tags, I actually left the uh, after the tech agents were putting together their strategy. I left the office in Calverton, and I went to, which was not. Uh, maybe 20, a 20 minute um, ride from the office in Calverton. And I actually called him from line. And I'm now Fred McNeil, the tag and title manager. So he has to deal with me when he comes in the next day. And when he comes in the next day, I'm actually behind the counter with a shirt on, mind you. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so, and then also, too, I'll, I'll focus was getting his fingerprints as well. We needed to get his fingerprints to then be positioned to pursue a document search warrant because, again, keep in mind, he never sold anything to the undercover Mark Coulter that would amount to us getting a state warrant, definitely not a federal warrant, but we couldn't get a state warrant either for the little bit of weed that he had sold him for a car to get in a car or to certainly not get into a residence, you know. So the next focus was to prove that he had, um, well, identity fraud, get a, 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 a federal warrant pursuing the angle from identity fraud, okay. And so um, we were ready to rock and roll, you know, and the tech agents did their job. And, and, I, and I have to say right now, I was just amazed as being, a, being from being a trooper, I was just amazed at, at the – the uh, how can I say it? The um, I mean, wow! The 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 resources, the professionalism, the expertise of the FBI, and how they were able to come in and set those rooms up in the manner that they did. I mean, this happened that same evening when they called me. We started rolling. We started rocking and rolling to where when he came in the next day, we were all in place. We had a surveillance team um, of agents and task force officers, and we're ready to receive him. Again, not certain, though, what information he had, but feeling that he knew something about the murder of these three, three women. I, I tell you, it was, uh, it, was, it, was, it was awesome. 
if I think about it, as I still think about it, it, it was an awesome operation. Well, when I called him, I said, hey, listen, um, you know, this Greg McNeil they said, you need to be here uh, at 12. Um, don't be late. You know, I said, um, I'm, I'm a regional manager. I have to go up to, to Pennsylvania uh, shortly after I meet with you, so don't be late. And his response was, sir, I'm not going to be late. I'll be there right at 12. And sure enough, 12 o'clock, he shows up. When he approaches the counter, he he, he can look and he he could see me. Uh, of course, he didn't know where I was at that time, but he uh, I'm sitting amongst the other employees um, at a desk. And when he asked the receptionist for Fred McNeil, she actually announces it over the intercom. So all this is looking perfectly legit to him. You know, he's not he's none the wiser that this is an operation to uh, a law enforcement operation. And so when he um, when they uh, announced over the speaker that I had a, uh, uh, someone who wanted to see me, a customer, I came from behind uh, the counter area, you know, shook his hand. I said, hey, uh, Mr. Fagan, uh, uh, Mr. McNeil, uh, can you give me a minute or so? I want to finish up with this customer. And so I noticed then that he has another subject with him, okay? Um, I'm, I, at this point, I don't know who this other person is. It ended up being Victor Gloria, one of the, that same sidekick who played a very important role in this whole uh, case. And so I said, listen, give me a few minutes. Let me finish up with my customer on the phone. I said, you can have some coffee, water, whatever, and you can just sit here until I come back. And so I go back to my desk and I pick up my radio and I reach out to all of the surveillance guys saying, telling them that this subject is, in fact, in the lobby, and he's with another identified subject. Uh, be alert. We're getting ready to start the operation. Again, the operation is to take him back to the rooms that are already pre-wired so we could get his fingerprints and, you know, see what conversation we can have with him. Okay? And so three or four minutes after my initial meeting with him, I come from behind the door. He and I started walking towards these the pre-designated, uh, the pre-wired rooms, the other subject is walking with us, Victor Gloria. And so I stopped and I said, hey, who is this guy? He says, that's my my boy. That's my man. I said, well, your man's going to have to stay out in the lobby till we finish what we have to go to have to finish. And so apologize. And Victor Gloria goes to sit, sit down and he and I go back to the rooms. And of course, as soon as he sit down, tech agents have him on a video audio. They're watching both of us. And, um, you know, he's given, he's given me some, I had written myself a note saying that, um, from my manager saying that we needed to get his some more reference information because, it, um, we couldn't get through to any of his ap- references on the application. So when I mentioned that to him, um, I said, Hey, uh, sir, we're trying to get in contact with your references and can't seem to be able to do that. You know, he says, Oh, well, I don't know why. And so, you know, I said, just kind of flew out. I said, well, do you have a girlfriend? Is she mad at you? You know, perhaps she's not giving you your messages. And so, of course, he, he bit right into that, brought into that. He said, yeah, well, you know, I got a girl, man, and she's been mad. Because I come in late at night. I'm a technician. You know, he's a busy technician. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I didn't see it. I didn't see anywhere where he had legitimate employment. Did you, uh, Jenna? No, in any of your, no. You know, but he was a technician, and so he's buying into it. And I said, okay. I said, well, listen. I said, um, we still need to get some reference information from you, and I'm going to have you write out some more um, 
give me three three references. And of course, we all know that what he's writing down is completely bogus. I go back to that. If I can get over get over attitude, if I can just beat this guy for now, I'm good. And so he, you know, is obviously putting touching the paper and you know putting his prints and stuff on. And so he's writing out three uh, references. Um, so at the end, he uh, he goes to hand the paper with to me, and I said, "Well, no, go ahead and sign it and date it um, to make sure we get." additional fingerprints and he's he does that and uh and then so he goes and reaches in his pocket to pull out a wad of cash and I said, No 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 I said you don't pay me, you pay the lady up at the front counter because the plan was to give him the plates for the car. Again, the surveillance operation would be to follow him wherever he went and uh so we could find out where he was lying his head at night to to, you know, execute a search warrant. That was the plan. I walk him back out to the counter, and he pays the money for the tax. He's given the tax, and he and Victor Gloria then leaves. Uh, phase one of our operation is complete. Phase two is the actual surveillance. Okay, so, uh, I, and of course, I didn't participate in that because I stayed behind to, you know, to make sure everything was secure. And of course, you had your uh, evidence collection person from the FBI to grab the uh, the uh, paper and seal the paper and secure that and all of that. And the tech agents are, you know, disassembling the equipment and all that. So, um, anyway, to make a long story short, he goes up on uh, Route 32, not far from uh, there, and uh, we ended up losing him. Someone uh, he turned left when someone thought he turned right. Apparently, a car of similar description came into the to the picture, and you know, the sometimes the best late plans uh, don't work. So we we lost yeah, him. Don't you hate when that happens? Yeah. But <laughs> but it happens. <laughs> it happens. So we lost him. But you know we're we're satisfied still that the first part of the operation was a success. That we have his his fingerprints and um, you know so forth and so on. And so lo and behold, Mark Coulter uh, from Prince George's County, who uh, I would say just has an uncanny ability to lo- to locate people. And again, Mark had already been dealing with him uh, at the at the mall, and he had some uh, idea. Mark had some idea where he was uh, hanging at on the street from time to time. wasn't sure, but Mark spent the next couple of days trying to track him down. Uh, and, and, and I can't say if whether he just followed him from the mall that next day because we really needed to find him. And sure enough, come 6 o'clock Monday morning, uh, I get a call from the supervisor saying, hey, Mark located him. Uh, we know where he is. We're going to do a search warrant on his house at about 6.30 or 7 o'clock, whatever, and it was early morning. And so we're going to meet at a parking lot of a restaurant, um, and we'll go from there. So, of course, you know, sleep is over for me now. It's time to get up, you know, and uh, head out and got to the staging area. And we um, assembled supervisor, FBI agents, uh, task force officers, and so forth and so on. Um, this guy is living in a gated condominium community. Okay? Okay. And this, oh, yeah. Well, he's writing these checks. These checks, I guess he's figuring, you know, this ain't, it's not going to last long, so let me just go as far as I can go. And so, and and I think we all know how hard it is once someone secure an apartment or whatever, how hard it is to get them out. So I guess he's figuring I've got at least two months, two or three months before, uh, you know, I have to leave. And then by then, I've 
I'm someone else. I've stolen someone else's tally roll. But interesting, so we execute the warrant, and he's in there. And um, he's in there by himself, very sparsely furnished uh, condo. Um, we find a uh, handgun case, no handgun, an empty handgun case, and we find a fully loaded 9mm uh, magazine, no gun, no gun whatsoever. Do you know at this point what kind of weapon you're looking for? Yes, Correct. we knew we were looking for, I think it was a three fifty seven revolver or something like that. A re- it, was a, a revolver, it was a yeah. revolver. Mm-hmm. Correct. Okay, a so revolver. they were shot with a revolver. Mm-hmm. Correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so and so we definitely didn't, we didn't find that or any other gun in the uh in his apartment. And again, he's there by himself. I think it was a small TV and I, I'm not even I don't can't even recall there's any furniture at all. I certainly wouldn't be surprised. But anyway, we took him into custody and transported him back to the office there in Calverton. Mark Coulter had secured a state warrant for Victor Gloria. He had, and Victor Gloria, and what I came to realize is that when Detective Coulter would occasionally purchase weed from Willis Haynes at the Law Lakes Mall, Victor Gloria was like his sidekick. You know, Victor Gloria would often be driving the car. Willis Haynes is a passenger. He'd call out to Mark or whoever, call out to his customers. They'll approach the car, make his his uh, buys or make his sell, and then and then Victor Gloria would just pull off. So Mark was successful in getting a conspiracy warrant for Victor Gloria's role in those limited transactions. Okay, it wasn't a lot. And again, I'll go back and emphasize that it wasn't enough to get a search warrant for the car and certainly wasn't enough to get a search warrant for a house. So here's what happened. We have Willis Haynes in custody in Calverton. He's on the lower level of the building. And Joe, uh, Detective Walker, Joe Walker, and Detective Coulter, both task force officers, they knew that Victor Gloria, um, I think his kid or something, went to a daycare. He would, they had surveilled him such that they knew that he would uh, occasionally drop his kid off at this daycare. And so they were able to intercept him after he dropped his kid off and took him into custody on that warrant. And they brought him to the task force. Oh, I mean, to the uh, to the office in Calverton. They're both in custody, mm-hmm. but they think they're in custody for the stealing of the car and for this minor drug case. They Correct. don't know anything Correct. about you believing Correct. or having an understanding that they were involved in triple murder. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. Well, I uh, guess no, they're no. going to be surprised. Well, <laughs> you know, we we were kind of all surprised in a sense, and 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 this is where things kind of get really interesting. Okay, so. Uh, we had gotten, uh, we had arrested Willis Haynes for the car. We have the warrant that we can now execute warrant, the warrant for him stealing the car. Take him into custody, bring him to the task force office in Calverton. He's in the basement area in one of the interrogation rooms. Um, the layout of the office in Calverton was such that you come in on the ground floor and you get on the elevator and go up to the second level, and I think the FBI leased that whole second floor. Is that was right? Is that right, Jenna? Yes, yeah. We had the whole second floor, and that's where the task force was kind of situated. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, okay, so they go and get Victor Gloria, 
And when they get on the elevator uh, and come up to the second floor, when the elevator opens, I just happen to be walking to the vending room to get some water, right? And so when the door opened, when the door opened, I mean, it was almost perfect timing. When the door opened, they step off the elevator. There's Victor Gloria. He's flanked on either side by Detective Coulter and Detective uh, Walker, Joe Walker. They're on either side of him. And he stops and looks at me. And I say, good, good morning, gentlemen. And he looks. You know, of course, he's trying to... He's trying to play in his mind. You know, I'm, I'm imagining that he's trying to recall where did I see this guy? <laughs> where have I seen him before? Yeah. Yeah. Why, what, so, yeah what, what's he doing there? Yeah. And I said, uh, I said, young man, I said, you, you're looking at me as if you know me from somewhere. And he says, uh, no. He's shaking his head. And I said, are, are you sure? He said, uh, no. I said, he said, he kind of looked familiar, you know. And I said, well, I give you a hint. I used to sell cars. And he, he said, oh, man. I said, yeah. I said, um, yeah. I said, listen, would you like to would you like to have some juice or water or whatever? He said, no, I'm good. I said, well, listen, they're going to put you in this interview room, and I'm going to grab me some water, and I'll be right with you. Okay? So they put him in the interview room. I go get some water. I come back. I go in there with him, close the door. It's he and I. Jerry, you have to understand no one in law enforcement knows for sure what happened to those girls. We don't know. Okay, but we're about to know. <laughs> okay? And so I said, uh, Mr. Gloria, I said, I'm actually, my name is actually Trooper Jones. You are here in an FBI facility, and you were brought here by two Prince George's County police officers. Okay? I said, I wanted to kind of share that with you before I get into, you know, my conversation with you. You know? I said, I also want to tell you this, okay? I am not going to lie to you, and I'm not going to allow you to lie to me, okay? I have some questions to ask you. I won't allow you to lie to me. If I feel as though you're lying to me, then we're going to end the conversation, end the interview, and then they can take you back to, take you down to the commissioner, and the commissioner can do whatever, okay? Do you understand that? He said, yeah. I said, but before we get started, do you have any idea as to why you're here? Jerry, he said, it's about those girls, isn't it? I almost wow. fell off my chair. I almost fell off the chair. I almost fell off the chair. And then I had to be cool, right? So then I go into, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, it is about those girls. You didn't think we forgot about that, did you? Well, we didn't. I said, we've been working on this a long time. And I said, you know... We, we know what happened. You know, we pretty much know what happened. But won't you tell us what happened? And he lays the whole thing out. And I don't think what anybody understood, I guess, uh, clearly I didn't understand, is that the reason he knew so much about what happened was because he was there when they were murdered. Okay? Wow. And, and he wrote out. Well, you got to tell me. You got to tell me what he said. Also, the emotion that he said it. I mean, was he just telling you like, you know, he's telling you about going to the store? Or no, did no, he no, understand he, the gravity? Well, he wants to get this off his chest. I'm sensing that he does because he didn't play a role in killing the girls. Right. He, he didn't he didn't he didn't participate in killing the girls. 
And we later learned, and Jenna can attest to this, that Willis and Dustin rightly rightly figured that he would be the wink link, and they were trying to kill him. They were trying to kill him. Mm. Okay, that's that's documented. I think that came out in trial, didn't it, Jenna? Yes, it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what what he said what he said is that um, he said uh, they were all together at first. The, the three guys. It was uh, and Dustin Dustin Higgs was a little older than Willis Willison. Uh, uh, Victor was I think like eighteen years old, and Dustin may have been like twenty one, twenty two, or whatever. He's a little older. And it was Dustin's apartment, and it was Dustin's mom's van that she let him drive. So she, she's trying to, uh, you know, uh, get him going, I guess. Um, and he's a near do well. She's trying to, you know, get him, get him, get him started in life or whatever. And so it was Dustin's suggestion that uh, they reach out to some girls to have a little social, okay? And uh, the connection between the, the two groups was Dustin. And Tangie Jackson, right, Jenna, I believe, if that's correct. Mm-hmm. I think they're the only two that knew each other, okay? And at some point, they were, uh, they, they got together that evening, and Dustin, I believe, uh, drove into the district to pick them up, okay, to come out for what was supposed to be a little, you know, a little gathering, a little, little, uh, wine, if you will, uh, cause I don't believe any drugs were involved. I, I don't, I don't, they weren't smoking any weed or any, anything of that nature. Um, but then at a certain point in time, Dustin had thoughts of wanting to have sex with, um, Tangie, and she didn't come over there for that reason. He articulated that Dustin actually struck her, which is why she got the knife that Jenna mentioned earlier to defend herself. And then they were able to get them all calmed down. And she ran out of the house. And the other two girls followed her. And as Jenna mentioned again, she actually writes down his tag number and says something to the effect that, you know, I know some guys that will take care of y'all. And he figured that to be a threat. And as they started walking away from the apartment, the, the guys get in the van under the pretense they want to take him home. So they actually pulled alongside him, aside of them, and apologize saying, you know, let bygones be bygones, we'll take y'all home. But as we now know, they didn't take him home. They they murdered him. And it was, so you ask yourself, what did they do to Willis Haynes? They didn't do anything to him. Not not a single thing. You know, he just, I think at trial, he tried to say that he was under Dustin's influence and he was afraid of Dustin. And so he killed him because he didn't want Dustin to kill him. But those uh, innocent, poor innocent women who I, I think about quite frequently did absolutely nothing to deserve uh, what happened to them. When they picked them up in the van, did they know that they were going to kill them? You know, it's unclear, Jerry. I think Dustin probably knew that they were going to kill him. I'm not sure if Willis knew that he was going to be killing them. And I know Victor didn't know that they were going to be killed. No. And one of the things, if I can say, that still kind of bothers me when I think about it today, after they kill, they kill the girls, they go to D.C., to Anacostia River, they dispose of the gun in the Anacostia River that was never recovered. They get back to the apartment, they start uh, wiping off the, the furniture and stuff, wiping down anything they feel the girls had touched. And then they dropped Victor Gloria off at his girlfriend's house in Laurel. And he told me that they actually watched it on TV, because by then... That next morning, this is this is major news, you know, as it would be anywhere. 
he and his girl are watching, and he tells his girl, Willis killed those three girls. And from that day to this, I don't think the girl has ever said anything. to him. She definitely didn't notify law enforcement. So, you know, that's that, that's kind of disturbing to know that there's, uh, I guess, people out there that could have information that something as heinous as that happened, happening and not say a word. Um, that's not a secret I could keep. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you. This is just so baffling to me because... You know, it doesn't sound like, I mean, she, you know, the one girl tried to defend herself. I guess she was trying to force her to have sex, and she defended herself with the knife. But but other than that, there was no big confrontation with all no, of them. None, It none, was just between those two, and the girls, yeah. rightly so, say, hey, look, we don't want to have sex with you guys. We don't want to party with you anymore. We're leaving. And right. because of that, yep. they're killed. Yep. Right. Wow. Um, plus the fact that... Tangie had written down Dustin's van number and made the the veil thread of, you know, I know somebody that'll take care of you guys. Yeah. You know, I'll get my boys from D.C. to do something to you. That was the, you know, the implication. So so Tangie had basically made a threat to them saying that, you know, my boys will take care of you guys for what you all did to us. Right. And so they, um, you know, they take off and then the guy's, Dustin, I think before he leaves the apartment, he's grabbed his gun. I don't know if Victor or or uh, Willis have seen him do so, but he does grab the gun, and you know they go in the van to try to pick him up under the pretense because Dustin's driving. Willis is in the the driver's seat, I think, and the front seat. Willis the is front in the front seat, seat. right? right. And mm-hmm. then um, Victor Gloria is in one of the other passenger seats. Well, he's in the he's in the foremost seat, Jennifer. If you remember, right? He's in the very back with with Tangie because mm-hmm. she doesn't want to be I guess, as far away from Dustin who struck her. So she's in the back. She's all the way in the back, and the other two girls, Michonne Chen and. Uh, Tamika Black are in that middle seat because it's a, it's a it's a van, right? Uh, and uh, and and I would say that uh, Victor was not aware that uh, that Dustin had grabbed his gun. Uh, at least that's what he articulated. He didn't know that this was going to go down. Um, but certainly, when they pulled over and uh, to put him out, he just slipped the gun to Willis Haynes and told him to take care of him, and and he brutally shot. All three of them right there on the spot, and you know if you think about it, you know he he snatched the one girl out first, shot her, snatched the second. Uh, I think it was Michonne Chen who he killed first, if I can remember some of that. What was in the uh, reports, and then he grabbed uh, Tamika Black. But can you imagine the fright that all of these girls must have gone through, especially especially Tangi Jackson seeing her two friends murdered right before us, knowing that she's going to meet the same fate. It's just just horrific, you know, it's what it was, absolutely horrific. And as we know, during the trials, both of them faced the death penalty. Uh, The jury in Willis Haynes' case uh, came back and sentenced him to life without parole, wherein Dustin did receive uh, a federal death sentence, a rare federal death sentence, becoming the first Maryland defendant to receive a uh, federal death sentence. So he's now awaiting his fate out in Terry Holt, Indiana, on federal death row. Wow. Right, yeah. And what happened to Victor? 
Yeah, he was, I think, charged with accessory after the fact. I think that's what it was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he got, I think, about seven or eight years of Mm -hmm. prison time, and I Mm -hmm. believe he is out of jail at this point. Mm -hmm. Willis is still in, of course, and Destin has been on death row basically for the last 17 years because he was convicted in 2000, I think it was. You know, one of the things that, you know, of course, you know, I'm thinking now from from hindsight, Mm -hmm. but if Dustin was upset because she copied down his license. Why didn't he take that from them before they left the bodies? I mean, that's really what allowed investigators to connect him to this crime, was the fact that she had written down the license plate. Right. Yeah, and I Although, think that's one of the first thing they first things they found was the license number. What's that note, Jenna, right? That was one of the mm-hmm. first things they found in her purse. However, you know, that doesn't mean anything. You know, somebody's writing down your tag number. I mean, let me let me clarify that and say it certainly put the park police at his his doorstep, but then what? You know what I mean? If he's not talking, okay, right. so what do you have on me? You know, and, and they and he's a hard he's a hardcore guys. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm just so. wondering why Dustin didn't remove that piece of paper. He knew about it. Right. I'm thinking that in the heat of the moment, you know, because, I mean, you remember from being on the firearms range, when you hear that gun go off, it's still jarring. I don't care how many times you hear it, how many times you see the trigger being pulled. And I don't think, I think he probably forgot that she had written it down. Well, that too. And then also, they're on a public roadway. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. So it's not like we got a lot of time to hang around after we've we've done this, you know. And that that would just be my speculation. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Jerry, I might add, again, you know, with all respect, all due respect to the Park Police and everyone else that uh, all the others that looked at this case and worked this case, it, it, it went to cold case status because there was no other, nothing else to pursue per se uh, until Jenna looked at it, designated her, her agents to look at it, and then these things just kind of happened, you know. Uh, favorably, no doubt, you know, absolutely favorably to the outcome, for us realizing the outcome that we did. And again, a lot of work on both the FBI and our task force members. I think the task force consisted of eight FBI agents and eight local police officers. And at the time when I was managing them, seven of those agents were on probation. So they had less than three years in the FBI. And so this was a phenomenal job on all of their parts to get this done. I mean, we were all very, I remember when the interviews were going on with with Victor Gloria and Willis Haynes, and I'm getting feedback. I'm like, okay, he said this, and oh my God, he said that. And we were seeing the stories come together, and we're finally getting some closure as to what happened, and we're we're getting, you know, good witness statements. And it's such a joy to hear that because now you know that you can provide some closure to the families of these three girls. I mean, because at this point, you know, I, I can't even imagine what it would be like to hear that your child has been murdered and left dead on a on a road in the middle of Maryland. And um, so it you was... You have no clue. You have no right. clue as to why. You have no Who clue as to why. why. And... You know, finally, two two years later, you find out the story and you're able to close that chapter. And hopefully the people that were responsible will get convicted. And in this case, we were fortunate and they were. 
Fantastic job. Absolutely fantastic job. You're just trying to look for that something, something that you could take to bring them in and then just hope, (laughs) you know, that you could have brought them in for the little, you know, the petty little drug case and for the car stuff and they not said a word. You're right. And Mm -hmm. understand this, Jerry, understand this. When I asked him, when I asked him the question, do you know why you're here? What if he just said, no, you tell me why am I here? And just and mm. just not acknowledged or confessed to anything. I don't know what you're talking about. If he if he had held to that position and Willis Haynes would have stayed with his position, they would have walked. They probably would have, well, they would have gone to the commissioner and probably been PR'd, released on their personal recognizance. So, you know, we had a little luck on our side, a little fortune on the side of law enforcement. And thank God we had it. When we had it, because we, as Jenna just mentioned, we were able to give closure and justice to uh, the loved ones of those who uh, that were so brutally murdered. So it gave me a good feeling and a feeling that I still share today. So, Ted, I know that you've written a book. Is this case going to be part of that book? Is, is this in that book? Yes, it is. Yes, it is, Jerry. As, uh, right towards the end, I kind of close out my book with this um, with this particular case. The title of my book is uh, Protect and Serve, Reflections of a Maryland State Trooper. And it just it just uh, highlights some of the uh, cases that I worked, uh, starting from uh, when I uh, first came on the uh, the job uh, as a trooper. Um, I think I mentioned I am a, um, a native of Baltimore City. Uh, I grew up in East Baltimore. And, and my senior year of high school, uh, I witnessed... Uh, I witnessed the murder of a uniformed police officer on a traffic stop, and he ended up being, and I mean, when I say witness, I'm an eyewitness from about maybe 30, less than 30 feet from when he he uh, confronted a uh, a violator in a car, and he ends up being that the fourth police officer killed that year in Baltimore City, and uh, I point that out only because um, in witnessing. Uh, that type of um, a traumatic event, the assault and murder of a police officer, it, it, it did not deter me from pursuing my uh, lifelong desire, and that was to become a police officer, a state trooper at that, and uh, live out what I believe was my calling to protect and serve. So there you have it in my book, Protect and Serve. Very good. You know, I'll put a link to your book in this episode's show notes. And uh, if anybody wants to check it out, they'll be able to do that. Wonderful. So, Jenna, Jenna, what's your story? (laughs) What's your story? (laughs) When did you join the FBI and why did you want to join the FBI? My FBI career is really a direct result of you, isn't it, Jerry? Um, Jerry was my... (laughs) Applicant coordinator, she's the woman who I visited in the Philadelphia FBI office who convinced wow. me to put in an application to the FBI. Wow. And 25 years later, I was able to work for the FBI and retire and now be interviewed on Jerry's podcast. So life is a very strange thing. Wow, wow. Well, yeah, great, great job, Jerry. Circle. Great, great job yeah, in recruiting I, Jenna. I, I, Absolutely. Yeah, I take, she's the I best. take full credit for uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jenna's career. Because, Jenna, you actually, uh, you know, you were talking about in this particular case, you were an acting supervisor, but uh, you did go up the ladder in the Bureau, 
Uh, tell us a little bit more about what you did after you moved on from this uh, this task force. Well, after I left um, the Baltimore Division, I went to our FBI headquarters and worked in our International Operations Division, which oversees FBI personnel that are stationed in U.S. embassies across the world. And so I did that for two years and was then fortunate enough to get a field supervisory position in the Seattle Division where I stayed for six years. And I managed um, a group of what we call resident agencies. So I was in charge of three small offices just south of Seattle, like Tacoma, Olympia, and Vancouver, Washington, which is right on the Oregon border. And I managed a group of agents. I started another uh, Safe Streets Task Force out of the RA, and I ended up also starting a joint terrorism task force to address some of our terrorism issues. And while I was in Tacoma, um, we had the incident with the D.C. sniper back on the East Coast, and our little office in Tacoma had the, I don't know, misfortune or the fortune of getting a guy walk into the office late in the evening and say that, I think my friend is the D.C. sniper, and this is in the middle of the whole investigation. And we're like, I thought it was odd that someone would come in and saying that, and I'm thinking, is he crazy? Is he off his rocks? But he was a very lucent, cogent, intelligent man, a former military man, and he told us a story which ended up being the story of John Muhammad and John, uh, John Muhammad and I forget Lee Malvo. The, Lee Malvo. Mm-hmm. And um, we ended up writing the probable cause warrant for the rest of law enforcement on the East Coast to stop uh, Muhammad when they finally found him in Maryland. So that was wow, that's um, fascinating. I'm going to have to do an episode on the D.C. sniper. So you're going to have to uh, tell me who I need to call on the East Coast that can tell us what was going on in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area when all of this was happening. And then I'm going to get you back on so to talk about what you just mentioned was happening in Washington and you know, do a, a case review of the D.C. sniper case. So don't tell us anymore. Okay, I'm I will. I'll be back in touch with you for that. <laughs> right. <laughs> So I ended up leaving Seattle and going back to our FBI headquarters where I ended my career as chief of staff for one of the assistant directors of the criminal division of the FBI. Fantastic. I just wanted to also say real quickly, you know, when Jenna left our task force, there, there was a lot of sadness, okay, because uh, I don't know if you are aware of this, but uh, Jenna is an excellent cook, right? <laughs> And so, you know, she would bring she would bring dishes. You, you know, that's important. That's important to a task force full of guys. Now, okay, I'm just going to tell you. And so, uh, we missed it when she left left us. You know, but um, yeah. So, but I enjoy I enjoyed my entire uh, task force experience. FBI Safe Streets Violent Crimes Task Force. Uh, it was a heck of a way to uh, end my career with the state police. You did retire from the Maryland State Police. I did. I did. I retired. Uh, it was time to time to leave. Well, this has been fantastic, and you know, I really appreciate you taking the time to to tell us, you know, about this unbelievable triple murder case. And again, you know, you said that it was the first 
first federal death sentence imposed on a, a defendant from Maryland. Right, um, in the federal system. In the, in the federal system, in the federal system, correct. There's only two defendants from Maryland that's sitting on uh, federal death row in Terry Halt, and Dustin Hagel's the first one. Fascinating. All right, so we're done. I want to give everybody a, a last chance to sum up yeah, or to say anything that they want to say. Ted, why don't you go first? I just want to say that I had a wonderful, wonderful uh, career and experience uh, working with the federal, uh, with the FBI, with the federal authorities. Uh, I was just amazed uh, at the uh, the resources and again the expertise, uh, professionalism of uh, the agents that I, I was uh, fortunate enough to meet. And the one person leading that list would be uh, uh, Supervisory Special Agent Retired Jenna Davis. Thank you, Ted, for those kind comments. I would just like to say that despite what you see in the media and in the movies about the FBI and local law enforcement, we do work very well. We have the Safe Streets program. It's still in existence today, and I am glad that the FBI has been able to maintain this system to allow both the FBI agents and the local officers an opportunity to work together and um, combat crime in their neighborhoods and cities. And that's the end of the episode. As always, back at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find photos of Jenna Davis and Ted Jones, and you'll find newspaper articles about this case, as well as more information about Ted Jones's soon-to-be-published book, Protect and Serve. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you share it with your friends, family, and associates. I make it easy for you. At the bottom of the episode show notes, you'll find all the social media share buttons And of course, you can share the episode directly from your phone. And could you do me a favor? If you are listening to this episode by way of your favorite podcast app, such as iTunes, please leave a review. I don't have a crime fiction recommendation for you this week. I've been a little busy, but if you are looking for something good to read, don't forget about my FBI crime thriller, Pay to Play, available at Amazon.com. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.